Hey, what's going on? It's Cole Cruz, and you're listening to the KC at the Movies podcast for the 9th of September, 2021. How you going? How's everybody doing? On uh, this week's podcast, we'll be talking about some horror. Um, I know a couple of podcasts ago, or I think the last podcast, I did say that I was thinking about talking about the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. I think it was the one before, or a um, couple, couple ones ago, but I decided to just shift the schedule around a bit. I've planned out the next few that I want to talk about, but this one, I, I wanted to talk about some horror films that I'd seen recently, and more specifically, we're going to be talking about um, someone seen recently, something that's that's come out, uh, like, not not so recently, but has been big uh, this year, one of the biggest box office um, smashes this year already, A Quiet Place Part 2, written and directed by John Krasinski. I'll be talking about Sensor, written and directed by Parley Bailey Bond, also co-written by Anthony Fletcher. And I wanted to give my thoughts on the Fear Street trilogy um, that I finally got to check out, um, which came out in weekly installments throughout July, but I checked it out um, through throughout August, and now it's September. So here we are. This podcast was supposed to come out last week, but I just wanted to refine a few aspects of it and make sure it was ready to go. Um, like I said, I had to shift a lot of uh, a bit of the schedule around because I know what I want to do leading up to the 100th, epi- 100th episode of this podcast. But um, I, I just realized I didn't really want to talk about the Pirates franchise anymore. I just, I just wasn't really feeling it. So when I don't feel something, it gets chucked and then I move on to uh, the next thing. And I move on and I wanted to move on to something I wanted to talk about. And that is um, horror movies which I'm becoming more accustomed to, uh, I, especially throughout the Horror October challenges that I've done throughout the years and, you know, exploring more, uh, exploring more horror in, in cinema. Um, I've grown to really, really love the genre and really appreciate it, especially what creators and directors and um, especially what filmmakers can do with the technical aspects of horror, um, not so much with... Um, technical aspects and thematically and I think horror is a is really becoming one of my favorite film genres um, moving into a, yet another horror October um, so I'm very very excited to dive into that and um, dive into that once again watch some more horror movies and appreciate that more but that's enough talk let's move on to the first movie we're talking about which is A Quiet Place Part 2 which was meant to come out last year uh, during the pandemic. However, Paramount decided to hold off. I think Krasinski and Paramount both made the right decision to put this forward to next year. Uh, I guess they took a note from Nolan's book from Tenet last year when it didn't make Jack fuck. So, um, well, I wouldn't say Jack fuck, but like not not the amount that they were hoping for. So they moved it up to this year and I think it was a great decision to do that because I got to watch this in the cinema and I'll be talking about that experience uh, very, very soon. First of all, though, let's talk about the first one. The first Quiet Place uh, came out in 2018, based off a script written by uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, and um, itself is a very unorthodox way of writing a script, I think, because um, reading the original thing uh, <laughs> was absolutely insane. It's, it's The formatting is... It's pretty much everything you've learned about screenwriting. I mean, this is um, uh, specific to writers. Anything you learned about screenwriting uh, that is just thrown out the window and they just do whatever the fuck they wanted. And then Krasinski found that uh, it, it landed in front of Krasinski. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how, but um, he loved the script and then he adapted it into film. He loved the script, and then he made the film, wanted to direct the film, and A Quiet Place 1, I mean, what do we call that part 1 now? Do we just call that A Quiet Place still? I'm not too sure, but uh, A Quiet Place was really established Krasinski as a promising horror filmmaker, and um, I really, really liked what he did with that film, specifically uh, with the sound design and the way it looked. I think that is, when it, when horror is used in those ways to get across the audience to be, I, f- I feel like A Quiet Place wasn't something like Hereditary where it's like something you can like marinate on and think about. I'm like, whoa, that was so dreadful. Quiet Place strikes a line, a fine line between being entertaining 
and also aren't artful and tense at the same time. Um, I thought Krasinski stroked, striked a uh, very fine line there and uh, made that possibly why that film um, is possibly the reason that film became such a smash hit. First of all, it's Southwest, uh, South by Southwest in 2018 and then when it finally hit theatres uh, in 2018 and everyone came away from that pretty much saying that that was one of their favourite movies of the year. So we move on from that, especially the ending of that. I wasn't sure if they're going to get a sequel and then Paramount announced they're going to do a sequel and I was kind of just thinking, well, I'd, I'd, uh, like if you get a different person for this, I don't think it's going to feel right. But then it was announced shortly after that Krasinski was returning to write and uh, solely write and direct this sequel. So I had a little bit more faith in it and um, I was excited to see how Krasinski could expand this world, I mean, especially from this ending, how where the uh, the family can go from here, what is the next uh, obstacle, I guess. And um, if if it would go more like a Alien and then an Aliens vibe, I mean, I know these movies directed by different people. I mean, the first one being by Ridley Scott and the second one by James Cameron, but the big difference between those two films and I think why audiences like those two films is one is a, a very tense horror film and the second one is an action film and I was kind of had my uh, thoughts on whether Krasinski would follow that route and make Quiet Place Part 2 more of kind of look more of an action film I kind of feel like he's done that with this sequel there are some horror aspects throughout this and there's you know there's a few jump scares here and there um it still retains its horror elements but i think this one's more actiony <laughs> if that makes any sense but um before i get into talking about this movie uh not in depth but like giving my full thoughts on it i will be talking about some minor spoilers or and in leading into major spoilers won't be talking about huge spoilers but there will be I will be getting in depth with certain aspects I want to talk about with this film. So if you don't want any of that, I'll be putting timestamps in this podcast. If you want to move on to the next section or the next film I'm talking about or let you choose where you want to go. If you want to go to the Sensor Talk or the Fear Street Trilogy Talk, you can do that and uh, avoid the spoilers on this one. But if you want to talk Quiet Place Part 2, let's bloody do that now. So... Um, first of all, I want to talk about the opening scene. It was such a good way to bring back Lee, in my opinion. Uh, I, ne- I didn't think we'd see Lee again. Lee is uh, John Krasinski's character from the first one. And we know from the first one that Lee sacrificed himself for the family uh, with that great and very emotional scene. Um, great performance from John Krasinski in that scene as well. I thought it was such a good way to bring back Lee. It kind of the only way really to bring back Lee is through through a flashback unless you want to do a cheap move like making him a ghostly projection or something. I didn't think Krasinski would down that road. Um, So I'm glad we got this sort of flashback. Not only does does this bring back uh, Krasinski again and it allows him to talk. It allows a lot of the characters to talk. We got some context on where the aliens came from. Yeah, this this is in a way, this, I mean, this is the day one of the invasion, of the alien invasion. I thought that's a great way of opening up the sequel. Um, everyone's talking. Everyone seems normal. And there's a, just a really, really, enga- it's just a really, really engaging, open, uh, engaging opening sequence. Um, we are thrown back into the elements and the perspectives that worked in the first movie once you are in the car with Lee and Reagan. We're put into the perspective of Reagan again, um, now that she's a deaf character and what she can hear, and that's what really worked about the first movie. Krasinski was able to effectively portray what Millicent Simmons hears in reality and, and what it actually sounds like to a deaf person, what the situation would sound like to a deaf person. And um, using the great movie magic tool known as sound design, we were able to do that. Um, he was able to pull off that quite effectively in the first one, like I said. So right after the opening scene, it picks up right where we left off for the first one with Evelyn, Reagan, and Marcus. Um, you know, the first one ended with her cocking the shotgun. They kill uh, one of the aliens. They move out to the hideout. And uh, they find 
the hideout that belongs to Emmett, who is introduced in the opening scene that is played by Killian Murphy. And the only thing that didn't really work for me that much is like once they're getting to once they're getting to the compound, once they get into the building and you just see the sniper sniper uh, crosshair on them, like you kind of know that they're not going to get shot and you kind of predict that it is Emmett. And you know that, um, like that they're, they're not going to get shot. I will. I will say what did effectively work for me though, and what really like fucking got us in the theater was when Marcus steps in the bear trap, and um, Noah Jupe's fucking very raw performance of him just like screaming that kind of almost squeal uh, was really really uh, worrying. <laughs> was really really scary to be honest and uh once they're inside the hideout they meet emmett he's been living um in this underground in this dilapidated, dilapidated building he's been living in this underground vault and uh, where pretty much the aliens can't see him or uh, sorry the aliens can't hear him so he can do as he pleases in there uh pretty much reagan hears a signal and then she decides to head out. The signal is played over the radio. She decides to head out. And um, bang, we have our inciting incident of the film. And first of all, I want to talk about the character of Emmett. Now, I feel like Emmett could have easily made the choice to take Regan's things and fuck off. <laughs> once the, um, Especially once they get to the train station. Um, but I do like that he decides to trust her. That, that being said... I think because the movie is such a tight um, runtime at uh, just 90 minutes, I think he does flip a little too quickly, um, especially given the context that we get later on with his family and his wife. I feel um, I feel like he wouldn't really trust anyone else, even though he does, you know, know who the um, um, who the family are. Even though he does know who the family are, like Evelyn, um, Evelyn Re, uh, Reagan Marcus, even though he does know who they are, he would be very, I'd say, grief stricken and wouldn't want to trust anyone else, um, especially given the. I mean, people go crazy during the apocalypse. We've, we've played games, we've seen movies of this happening, then where, you know, where it's not about the monster, it's becoming about us being the monster. You know, you know, those themes have been explored before in film and, uh, I think it could have been explored just a little bit more here, but I think a little more tension could have been wrung out of that is what I'm trying to say. Um, I will say that the boat segment was a bit weird. I thought this was like an interlude. It almost felt like an interlude um, with uh, when Regan and Emmett go to the boat people, see that girl who looks like a zombie. I don't know what the hell that was, but uh, like that girl looking like a zombie with the, you know, the, the, the fucked up, face i don't want to say fucked up face uh you know like you know bloody she had like a bloody face it, it almost did look like she was a zombie um and i thought it was just weird but you get a you get something that you do like about it as well because this does come with a really cool cross-cutting action set piece with reagan and Emmett with the boat people and the water and then you get uh, Marcus and the gun shooting the alien. I really like the juxtaposition between uh, them diving into the water. I mean, the two elements side by side, them diving into the water and then Marcus shooting the creature, you know, fire and water. I, I really liked uh, the way that was shown on screen. I kind of went in a uh, cross-cutting montage form, but uh, I thought that was really well done. And uh, just again, showing what Chris can do with this, with this concept and with this with this, with this film, um, just like the first movie had the silo sequence, which itself was a very creative way of showing tension. This movie has a sequence inside Emmett's hideout when uh, Marcus kind of fucks up and uh, closes the door. The towel falls off, and he has to steal some of the oxygen that is uh, with the within the basket of the baby that Evelyn has in that first movie where we had that great fucking scene with the lightning and the, and the storm and um, the alien coming through the house and Evelyn having to pretty much give birth in the bathtub 
um, yeah, fucking fucking great scene. But this one comes with its own little scene, kind of like that endless whole sequence, like I mentioned, where he has to steal the baby's oxygen, where he has to keep switching out the mask to give him some oxygen and the baby some oxygen. And very fucking tense, very much worked. <laughs> I was sitting with my friend and we're going, oh, fuck. fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was uh, very, very... Um, scary <laughs> was, was very very entertaining but at the same time tense as shit i was like oh my god like don't don't kill the baby please <laughs> um the movie though i feel like does wrap up on a bit of a weird note like it just ends like um the first one kind of ends as well but you know it's like it's the end like it's like all right it's the end um please if you know what i'm talking about there thank you but if you didn't understand i'm sorry <laughs> But, uh, yeah, this one just kind of just ends. But then you feel like uh, there could have been more given. But then you, but you also feel very satisfied because the film just feels so nice and tight. And uh, I very much left the cinema feeling, feeling very satisfied. Um, and speaking of cinema, the last thing I want to say is I am so glad and I was very lucky actually that before we went into lockdowns here in New South Wales that I went to see this in the cinema um, with a couple of friends of mine. I couldn't imagine watching this at home in my living room um, just on like my TV or one of my um, smaller screens because this one, just like the first, deserves to be seen in the cinema with great sound, great picture quality. Um, this is shot on 35mm film as well and it just looks fucking gorgeous up on the big screen and I again hats off to Krasinski for doing that for um, going down that technical road because it just looks fucking amazing uh, I applaud Krasinski and Paramount's patience to wait till the pandemic had a window where it calmed down for a bit uh, I mean look look, look look what this film has already made at the box office because of this decision to wait till this year to wait till everything calmed down um, looking at you Nolan for a tenant because he just had to put that out there but if you just wait people will return <laughs> and you will make a profit uh, I hope people did seek it out when it wasn't theaters but if you didn't um, this film hit, did hit digital and blu-ray on July 13th so if you can get it, you've got to make sure you have a good sound system because the sound design, once again, is phenomenal and that's where this movie shines once again. Um, and if you have a big screen, just fucking chuck it on there because it deserves to be seen on the, it deserves to be seen on the biggest screen you've got. Uh, but I think you've got it by now. The sequel definitely joins that list of the best horror sequels, in my opinion, of, of solid horror sequels. It's a very solid follow-up to the first one. Even being just as good, I think the first one just has a little hair above. Um, it's tense, it's entertaining, and it once again has strong performances. And Krasinski wants to make a third. If he wants to make one, I'd say let him. Uh, I'm very much open to a third one. I still don't know if that's going to happen yet, but um, yeah, I guess we'll find out. Paramount just announced their streaming service, so would this also hit Paramount Plus? I'm not sure. Uh, all I know is that it is it on digital on July 13th. Um, I know the Paramount Plus is the first one, uh, but I don't know if it's got the sequel yet. And again, another streaming service that like I'm like, oh, really? Like we're just gonna keep making more of these? Okay. Uh, but yeah, point being said, uh, Quiet Place Part Two, very very good sequel in my opinion, um, pretty, pretty solid, uh, just has a few, I just don't like the boat scene, I don't like the boat people, the island people are, I just, I don't think that is fleshed out at all, I think it's kind of, like, kind of like just, eh, well, that's, <laughs> and like the signal and everything, I don't know, I, like those aspects, those core aspects of the story, I'm just kind of just like, eh, I just care about the characters, and um, we got some good moments with the characters at least. Right, moving on. Let's talk about Sansa. This is a indie horror film that uh, I've seen recently that we really want to talk about. I believe this played at Sundance. I'm I'm not sure. Maybe it was South by... No, I think I think it was Sundance that this played at. Um, uh, but this recently hit digital. Uh, it's written by Prino Bailey Bond. It's also co-written by Anthony Fletcher. It's directed by Prino Bailey Bond. And the film is about a British woman 
named Enid, who works as a film censor, which is a person that watches through films and decides what would be appropriate to show audiences, pretty much watches through them, takes notes, and it's like, this could be, this this can go out, or this shouldn't go out, you change this, change this stuff. Um, it's basically making sure nothing too traumatic gets makes it into the cut, or it becomes like, I mean, and in, in, in nowadays, the example would be for a film to be NC-17, um, bringing that back down to like an R18+, plus, um, to making sure that people won't get too fucking traumatized by it. Um, one film that is assigned to Enid to review is so disturbing, uh, though, that it forces Enid to confront some trauma that she's currently going through, and it may be linked to the disappearance of her sister. Um, I found this movie to be quite unsettling, and even though I had quite a lukewarm response to it after the credits rolled, um, I saw it with a friend of mine. She kind of had the same feeling as well. Uh, since I've seen it, though, it really hasn't left my mind, and, and images from it are playing in my head. So, yeah, let's let's talk about it. I feel like dire- director Prano Bailey Bond made a very smart creative choice to set this during a specific period of time. Uh, this is set in England in the 1980s, and around this time, these films were called Video Nasties. They'll be made by directors to just pretty much were provocative features made by filmmakers to uh, to be fucked up, I guess, for the purpose of being fucked up. Um, and some even made it uh, to mainstream audiences, much to everyone's horror. Now, they, But these are pretty much, as people know them now, exploitation films like Cannibal Holocaust and films like that. And we get some sort of expositional montage during the opening credits showing us all that, showing us what is what are video nasties, how are people reacting to them, and... Um, just the culture surrounding that, um, that, and I thought that was a great way of opening opening the film, giving exposition, but doing it creatively, in my opinion. Um, so for the most part, I do think most of the film works. At the section near the midpoint where it came off as like oddly cheesy for the type of movie that this is, uh, most sections throughout are deliberately slow. It's a very slow-moving movie. Um, we, it's, it's essentially a character study on Enid and you're following her throughout most of the film. You're experiencing a lot of her mental state and how she's feeling a lot. Uh, we see Enid watch a few films and take notes. Um, there's conversations with fellow employees. There's just scenes of her just at home reviewing her notes and receiving abusive phone calls from the public because there is a bit of a subplot in, uh, in this movie where her and a, in another co-worker of hers have allowed a very violent film to pretty much hit the airways and to you know be exposed to modern audiences and uh they are getting the guff i'll say (laughs) they're getting the they're getting the guff of it i mean it's it's not that it's not funny but she does there are some certain sections of this movie where she she does um, face the consequences for that of her um i guess careless careless actions but I will say, um, it really does take its time with Enid, even for a 70-minute film. But, I mean, I love slow burn horror, so this wasn't really a problem for me. However, if you are not into that kind of thing, I don't think this film is going to be for you. As I said, even for a 70-minute film, this is a slow-moving boy. And uh, it is, as, as I said, it's essentially a character study of a person going through trauma and... You know, there are a lot of movies like that out there, but this one does take some creative liberties in the way it portrays it. And there are a lot of movies like that out there that portray trauma, uh, and represent a person going through trauma. But I think this one takes some creative liberties in the way it portrays Enid and her spiral, her state, and then, yeah, her eventual spiral. Uh, some like the one mentioned above, but others uh, I loved that really played with its premise presentation and the mood of the film um and minor spoilers this is this is not major at all but minor spoilers towards the end of the film there's a subtle transformation with the aspect ratio which i really like most of the film is a standard six by nine format uh, but during the third act the aspect ratio very subtly changes all the way to four by three um which happens to be the aspect ratio of the film enid is investigating um, stuff like that I really liked and uh, long this, like I said not going to tell you what what happens uh, what happens on screen during that time but I thought that was a really 
creative way of showing that just her spiral and um, how far gone she's really going. There's also this insanely creeping atmosphere that builds and builds throughout the out the story and then eventually crescendos into this twisted and very unsettling like final 10 minutes of the movie uh, which again I think played off um, really really well especially one of those final shots <laughs> oh boy um, so yeah thinking about it I actually like this a lot and after um, yeah so I actually like this a lot and after further thinking about it if you want a good slow burn psychological horror film that has fun of itself while also giving you a good creepy time, I think Sensor is definitely the way to go. And it's a nice and short at just seven minutes long. As I mentioned though, it is slow. But again, like I said, it's nothing like, um, let's say like a like an A24 movie that will be like two and a half hours and then just be really, really slow. I know some people don't really get down with those cups of tea. But... Um, this is much shorter. So I think this could be easy to stomach, although I will say it is still a slow burn. But creepy. Creepy. Very, very creepy. Twisted. And um, good time. Good time, in my opinion. So I do very much recommend uh, Sansa. If you can find it, get your hands on it. Get your eyes on it. And, <laughs> and uh, watch it. All right, next up, uh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this trilogy. This Fear Street trilogy based on the R.L. Stein books. This is definitely more of a an adult story than uh, his children's books, which I really, really liked in my childhood. Um, but I very much had nightmares with them and uh, didn't really like... Uh, had to keep had to stop reading them actually because of the nightmares I was having. So, but Goosebumps is dope. If you haven't read the Goosebumps books, they're they're really um, they're creepy, they're scary, they give you a good time, and um, I still think they hold up. I've I read one recently, and uh, it's pretty good for uh, you know children's to teen horror. Uh, but this is more the adult way of doing our old Stein and uh, Lee Janiak, along with. Certain other, um, several other writers, uh, mainly herself though, wanted to bring the Fear Street uh, series to the big screen. Uh, this was split into three movies, which played out over three weeks in July. I think I believe it was three weeks. Three weeks in July. So there was 1994, there was 1978, and then there was 1666. Back in 2015, a series actually was being developed by 20th Century Fox and Churn Entertainment. It was uh, Kyle Killam was then writing that script. And then in July of that year, the adaptation was announced as a trilogy with Janiac coming on and uh, directing, rewriting the script and rewriting Killam's script with her partner, Phil uh, Grazier Day. I'm sorry if I had said that name wrong, but and Zach Olkowitz. Um, also was drafting a script as well. And then in April 2020, Eternal Entertainment ended a distribution deal with 20th Century Studios and then made a multi-year first look deal with Netflix, resulting in Netflix distributing this trilogy. So there's your backstory, you're all caught up. Let's talk about Fear Street. Uh, This film, just talk about the story of it, the whole overarching story. Trilogy centers on this uh, young lesbian couple navigating their rock relationship when they're targeted by um, some killers. Some killers, a curse is released. There's a curse going around. There's killers roaming the streets. And um, each installment is kind of a nod or a tip of the hat or a homage to the films of, uh, of, the, of that time. Um, well, representing that time, really. 1984 being akin to uh, 1984, paying homage to Scream. 1978, paying homage to Friday the 13th. And then 1666, I feel paying homage to films like The Crucible or um, I wouldn't say The Witch, but I definitely got The Witch vibes. But I think more The Crucible. Lee Jenny actually says that she would uh, compare to the new world. But, uh, you know, I feel like it's, it's up to anyone um, watching them to make their own interpretation of what 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 it's um, paying homage to. So yes, we got three films here. Um, they're each about 
I think they get longer of each installment. I'm pretty sure that one ends. I think 1974 is now 40. Uh, 1978, it's like an hour 50, and then 66, it's like two, I think two hours. And I feel they get better by each installment. I think 78 is still my favorite, but 66 has a lot to like about it as well. Uh, but there are also elements that I didn't really love. Um, but the worst one, in my opinion, is the first one here in 1994. I'll give out some likes first before I talk about what I really didn't like about it, but... Um, I thought the relationship between Dina and Sam, um, I like that it's not really made to be the center of attention. Like it's not brought to, it's, it's, it's attention is not brought to in the script. It's just kind of played off as this, like, as any other straight relationship we've seen in film, which I really appreciated. I didn't really feel like the dialogue brought any attention to it, uh, you know, which I really appreciated. Um, I think Lee Jennings directing at times is really good. And to film with these back to back, Back to back to back is a commendable achievement. And um, I mostly like what she's doing this movies. I feel like the writing is where they kind of fall off. But again, um, I'll be talking about that in a little bit. And finally, the length and the violence and the kills, how far it went with all that shit, I was a fan of. Uh, just how far they went with how horrific and violent these movies would be. Um, one kill in particular in 1994. I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but one kill in particular uh, towards the end. Oh, boy. <laughs> that is something, I think, for the for, for modern horror audiences, that would have been like, whoa. And, and that is something to be proud of, I think, to have one of the best kills, in my opinion, of modern horror. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Um, but unfortunately, that's... All I did really like about this one, I mean, um, I just want to get to the things I didn't like because a lot of this I really didn't. I really, really, really didn't like. Um, the film started off, I mean, quite shit in my opinion. I don't, I don't know what, why they made the decision to start it off this way. I immediately didn't like any of the characters. Uh, the way they came off is quite weird and just I thought it was a weird way of establishing these people Dana especially just left a really bad taste of them out like immediately I was like and it's, it's and it's not like and I'm not pointing fingers at um, Keanu Madeira but um, I just the way she was established I thought it was just odd because I was just like I why should I like this person <laughs> she doesn't seem like a nice person she makes some really stupid decisions and uh, that scene with the bus in the beginning I was just like what the fuck? Like, almost killing these people. And she's the one talking about them, you know, being, you know, better than, like, Shady Side, for example. The trilogy is about two opposing towns, kind of like kind of like uh, Pawnee and Eagleton from Parks and Rec. We have uh, Shady Side and Sunnyvale. Um, the, the, the scene where she throws the... I think it was a Gatorade or whatever it was. Like I think it was a bucket of ice. I think um, at the bus and it lands on that car. Like that could that could kill them. <laughs> that could, like you could go for jail for that. And I'm I'm pretty sure they I'm pretty sure they did because like, there's a car accident and that's why she ends up in um, Sheriff Good's office. But oh my god! Like why should I like these fucking characters? They're fucking stupid. They're they're so dumb. And um, I just thought it was a strange way to start the series, like I said. Uh, there are certain scenes where characters are just, like, there without context. Like, near the beginning, like, why is Simon at Kate's house? <laughs> like, like again, you're, you're also establishing Kate, first of all. Like, um, being, like, a drug peddler and then telling his sister to sort the drugs differently. Uh, like, teaching his sister how to sort the drugs. I'm just like... What 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 is this? I don't I don't buy this for a second. And then again, Simon's just there when uh, Dana comes over when she sees Skullface outside the window. Uh, when she just comes over, and Simon's just at Kate's house. I mean, are they? To, I mean, they're not together. Uh, so what, what, why is he there? Is he just like? I I just thought that was really odd. Um, again, just to, just to reiterate, I just think this is a very, very poor establishment of characters overall for a whole trilogy and for us to, when you're expecting an audience to stay on 
with this trilogy and I guess to sympathize with these characters, why establishment in this way is just beyond me. Um, I, I, I'm not sh- I, I'm really not sure. I just want to point out as well that we were Maya Hawk baited. Okay. We were Maya Hawk baited. Um, she is in the opening scene like uh, Drew Barrymore is the opening scene of Scream. Um, and that's it. I thought it really played off in the in the trailer that Maya Hawk was going to be in the entire series, but without reading into it, you wouldn't even know. And then, um, yeah, she's not in the rest of the series. I'll say that. Um, so, love Maya Hawk, love what she does, but none, no Maya Hawk here. This film also has some really bad. I mean, I'm not going to say bad, but I just I'm just getting sick of needle drops in general. Um, bad needle drops, in my opinion. I think good needle drops are good, but bad needle drops, when they're done badly and really blatantly, um, that's when I'm really a fan of them. And unfortunately, this movie falls into that area of having blatant bad needle drops. Um, songs are good, but the way they do them is like, no. Um, I, I really feel like they could have just let the score play out. Um, but, however, if you're using Marco um, Bellatrami's score... You should not mix it so fucking poorly that you can barely hear the characters speak. I mean, there's particularly one scene at the beginning that stood out to me where Dana is confronting Sam and she the, the score is so loud that you can't even hear the dialogue coming out of the characters. Because, to tell you the truth, when I started this trilogy, I watched the first 20 minutes and then you get that scene with Dana and Sam and then I just turned it off. I was just like, fuck, no. I immediately don't like the characters. Your fucking mix sound mixing is god awful. So why should I be watching your thing? Um, but luckily, I came back. I stayed on, and there are there are some aspects of this trilogy that I do like. And like I said before, Jenny, I think has pulled off a gr- uh, a great job of pulling this all together in the end. Um, I just think it's a weird start. I just really think it's a weak fucking start. That's all, that's all, that's my biggest issue with this whole show. It's a weak fucking start. Um, and then this scene also has, has so much obnoxious camera movement that I was like, oh my fucking God, my eyes are just falling out of my fucking head. Um, and then to end this movie as dumb as it did, um, I thought it was some of the dumbest shit I've seen all year. And I've seen the hitman's wife's bodyguard, okay? <laughs> to, to, to end the film like this, to to have this be the way to take the killer out, I thought it was the dumbest shit I've seen in a very long time. Um, the killer's design was cool. The skull face design was cool, but the way to get rid of him and then and then <laughs> the way he goes, I just oh man, I I I thought it was so fucking stupid. <laughs> I thought it was so fucking dumb. But um, that's nine twenty four. I didn't like 1984. I believe I gave like one and a half stars in Letterboxd, but uh, I really didn't like 1994. The characters were obnoxious. I thought the characters were fucking annoying, especially Dana. And once they get to uh, see Berman's house at the end and we move into the next installment, this is where things start to pick up, in my opinion. So let's start... So let's talk about 1978. Immediately... We have such a presence of, we have such on-screen presence with Sadie Sink as Ziggy Berman. I, I love Sadie Sink in the Stranger Things series, um, and she's really, really good here. She's very good at playing a snarky, sarcastic bitch, and she does it fucking well, and she nails it. God love her. I think the summer camp is also really, really nice. I mean, this is obviously paying homage to Friday the 13th, and Janik herself has said that. And I just think it works. I think I am more attracted to this setting. And most of the characters here are likable and established well. Um, Emily Rudd as uh, Cindy Berman is a really, really likable character. She has a... she. You can understand her motivations. You know what, you know what kind of character she is. And you can predict the, the arc that she may have, but it's still really good seeing her. And so, and I think Emily Rudd does a great job of um, playing that character as well. This film is also better pacing than the first one, even though it's longer. 
I enjoyed myself more and I had a lot more fun this time around. And the ending was also better as well. Um, the build-up of having, spoilers here, but the build-up of having Tommy um, letting, I forget the I forgot the actor's name. Is it Ryan Simpkins? No. Tommy Slater. McCabe. Um, the build-up of having McCabe play Tommy, play the really nice, really nice Tommy, and then really building his way up to being the killer of, uh, you know, the Nightwing killer because we're at Camp Nightwing and becoming, um, and becoming the Nightwing killer that you do see in the first movie. I think that really, really made the character of the Nightwing killer, um, the best, I think. I think he is the best of the killers because he get the most out of them. I know a lot of people have a lot of opinions on the killers that were shown throughout the series, like Ruby Lane, for example. But I, I, I think the Nightwing killer would be my favorite one. And this movie, uh, another thing I liked about it, this, like I said, with 1984, how far they're willing to go with the violence, how horrific they're willing to go. This movie be killing kids. <laughs> this movie is killing fucking kids. So. I always applaud that when when movies are willing to go that far. Not for the sake of just let's kill fucking children, but just showing that, like, no one is safe within this camp. Like, no one's off limits. Um, Anyone can be killed. And, uh, yeah, some of the kills as well with, like, the kids. (laughs) Oh, shit. It's like, all right. Um, And like I said uh, before, the Nightwing killer is is um as Tommy and I think that makes it even better as well because Tommy the kids know Tommy as well and it means like uh you know they're they're like oh my god uh Tommy Tommy uh Slater like he's really he's also supposed to be the leader as well for this color war they're having between Sunnyvale and Shadyside and the kids know him and it's even it even like makes it more effective as well when Tommy himself himself is just fucking chucking his accent to one of these little kids with the with the glasses I mean fuck <laughs> Um, yeah, big, I, I like when movies are willing to do that one, had the fucking balls to do that. And in a good way, you know, like I said, in a good way, you can do anything, but the way you do it, I think matters more. But let's get on to the things I didn't like about, uh, 1978. And that's just the needle drops around this, this time around were a little fucking ridiculous, very fucking ridiculous. Um, this is the epitome I felt it more in this installment. This was the epitome of, you know, okay, what scene we got here? What scene we got coming up? Because, okay, the the characters are doing this and that. All right, so let's just use a song that will illustrate that in this scene. We'll just just pick this one. Everyone knows this one, so let's just pick this one. There is two instances. There is two instances of Carry On My Wayward Son by Kansas in this film. And, uh... For no reason. For no reason, really. But just because we have the song, let's just chuck it in there. And, um, yeah, not a fan of that. Stop stop doing that. I, I don't like that. Stop stop doing that. And, um, yeah, I think that's about it that I didn't like about it. I think, I think it's also just some of the... What I did notice as well is some of the way it's shot. It's really weird because it skirts the line between being... They like being movies, being like a trilogy of movies, but then... It's got, it's really, it looks like it has the production value of, of a TV show, but a really fucking good TV show. So it's like, it's, it's not a movie, but it's not a TV show. It's kind of like in the middle and the way it's shot really comes off like that. The editing is nothing to write home about. The, the filming is not written to write home about. It just looks like a show you watch on Netflix, which it, appropriately it's on Netflix. So, um, I mean, I wish it just had a bit more exper- experimentation with those aspects. But, I mean, that's that, that, they want to appeal. I feel like the demographic for this these movie definitely is teens and young adults. So I guess they want to appeal to those people. And it's easy to stomach. Um, those, these aspects are easy to stomach. So, yeah, I feel I think 1978 was a step up from 1994. Um, definitely. Um, but um, it's still just, it was just fun. I'll just say it was fun. Nothing to be crazy about all right moving on to 1666 
Um, the reason we get to this setting is because Dina uh, bleeds on the bones. When you when you bleed on the bones, you see this vision of the witch of Seraphir, the witch of um, um, of Shadyside. And uh, throughout this whole trilogy, by the way, they have they feel like they've been uh, to to give you context throughout this trilogy they feel like they've been stalked by this witch they've she's putting a curse on them but then you feel think you find out later that that's not the case that is not the case so what happens is dina bleeds on the bones but this time she is transported i mean it's not time travel it's not a time loop or anything it's it's not time travel because it's just showing it's still sarah but it is through the eyes of dina so we are transported to 1666 um i forget what the town is called, but it's very much looking like the witch um, or the crucible. All the characters that we've seen throughout the series so far are playing different roles throughout the town. Um, the very odd decision of giving everyone Irish accents. <clears throat> no. <laughs> um, I, I think you can say that you won't notice it after a while, but as soon as it starts, you're like, oh, oh no, these, these people can't do Irish accents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no um but uh yeah i thought there was another decision i thought they could just let them have um or just you know learn how to do irish learn how to do them better but i i think obviously she wasn't given much too much time this whole trilogy was shot in 106 days so um i don't think there's much leeway to like perfect the accents and like i said you don't really notice it after a while anyway um Again, like The Witch, like The Crucible, uh, I do like these kind of settings. This also reminded me of that movie Apostle as well by Gareth Evans, which is set in this setting, this kind of um, old town pilgrimage or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think like folk, folk horror, that's what I'm trying to get at, folk horror. Uh, like uh, Wicker Man as well, um, folk horror. It's, it's spooky stuff. Small towns, people you can't trust. You can do some cool shit with that. And uh, I feel like 66 and six, 1666, I mean, fucking say that fucking <laughs> three times. Uh, 1666 does that well, I feel like. And then the performances of Keanu Madeira and uh, I'm going to just highlight the performances of both Keanu Madeira and Olivia Scott Welch um, during the, one of the final scenes in this, um, in this installment. I thought it was really, really good. And um, that was that was that was definitely one of the stronger aspects of the movie. And uh, I feel, even though I've been talking some shit about this franchise, I did feel like it did wrap up quite well. It's like again nothing crazy, but I feel like the ending was pretty satisfactory. When we do find out who is actually all behind all this, actual cause for this is, you're kind of like. Oh, that makes sense, and it does really work as well for the for modern world. And uh, it's got a it's got a pretty entertaining like final fifteen minutes. So I'll give it that as well. We also get a kind of a fake out throughout. Uh, Sixteen sixty six actually is not the whole setting. Halfway through, you get a title card that says uh, nineteen ninety four part two, and then you're like, oh no. Let's go back to the 6066 setting, please. <laughs> but because um, the 94, I'm not really a fan of. But, you know, they managed to pull off those last 25 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes, in my opinion. And um, it does end up being a satisfactory and entertaining ending. Um, so overall, it's fine. <laughs> um, I didn't hate this. I hated the first movie, but I didn't hate this whole trilogy overall. I think it, um, in the end... Wrapped up well and hats off to Lee Janiak for, for doing that, for pulling this together. I thought it was a great feat. Um, 1978 was definitely my favorite and it probably would go 1666 and then 994, of course, um, afterwards. And uh, that's my thoughts on the Fear Street trilogy. You can watch them now, make your own opinion on Netflix. Um, all three installments are out and um, yeah. I mean, yeah, if you want to have an entertaining time, it's easy to digest as well. I think that was one of the comments as well that my friend had was they're just easy to digest and easy to watch. So, um, yeah, I, I would still, I think I would recommend them to people who would wanted to check out some, some horror. 
Um, if you wanted to save them as well to October, I think that's a there's that would really work within that um, month's context as well. Uh, so that will do for this podcast. That uh, we have been talking about horror for a little bit, just a little bit, you know. And uh, it's time to wrap up. Uh, Quiet Place Part Two, like I said, um, that is on digital. You can watch that in digital. You can watch censor in digital. Um, digital platforms um out of everything here i probably recommend center the most but um yeah the good thing is you can access any of these you can watch them you can make your own opinion there'll probably be some more horror be coming up soon in the podcast because october is just around the corner i will be doing another horror october challenge so i'm very excited about that and before i head off i just want to let you know that i'm on facebook the public page don't follow my don't friend me just follow the public page. That's where you're going to get all the updates for the podcast, YouTube channel, anything I'm doing. Um, Kyle Cruz on Facebook. On Instagram, it's Kyle underscore Cruz. That is where, again, you're going to get all the updates on there as well. Letterboxd, I'm Kyle Cruz. Twitter, at Kyle Cruz. And then finally, the YouTube channel, Kyle Cruz. I just started bringing back the Everything I Watch segment. Um, July is up there right now. August will be going up this week as well be filming that tonight and um yeah that'll do stay safe uh, especially if you're living in new south wales stay safe um for all the rules hopefully we get out of this soon and um speaking of normal i hope to return to normal with this podcast schedule as well i know it's been a while i know it's very all over the place but uh um i've got the next few planned out and um very much looking forward to doing those um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Everything as well, which I talked about, which is the links to everything, will be in the show notes. And uh, I'll talk to you uh, next week. I think next week we're going to be doing a everything I've watched so far this year. I might do something easily digestible, so um, nothing too high concept. I think that I'll be thinking about doing those further towards the 100th episode mark. But next week I think I'll be doing something a bit easier. We'll be talking about... Um, some of the best stuff I've seen all year and I thought it'd be much of an easier one to talk about and a good way to give you guys some recommendations as well. So I'll talk to you there.